Uh, we're going to start a series. We're going to do, actually do a, a series of, of messages around this concept of the persecuted church and about persecution in general. Um, let me just say that uh, for us, this is not reality. I mean, this is not reality for us. We, we are blessed and we want to acknowledge God's blessing to live in a country where we don't have to worry about this kind of thing. But brothers and sisters of ours all around the world really do. And this is the first time in my 15 years of ministry that I've ever done a series of messages on the persecution or persecuted church. question people ask, well, why now? Why are you doing this? And a couple of reasons. First of all, just because of the sheer amount of persecution that's happening worldwide. I think we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, need to stand with our brothers and sisters that are being persecuted. We need to be aware of it. We need to pray for them. It's just an act of service to them to, de- to declare what's happening. Secondly, it is persecution a major, major vein that runs through the history of Christianity. And we, in fact, are among the very small minority of believers throughout history that don't have to deal with persecution. I just want us to kind of understand what it is because the reality is if you read the news, if you read what's happening, if you see what's going on in our world, it is not hard to imagine when someday down the line, maybe not in a life or death situation, but in some way down the line, we will have to give a defense of our life for Jesus. Sometimes it happens when we see like terrorist attacks and terrorist attacks happen. And, um, you know, I mean, uh, you, you probably know this, but it's worth reminding you that terrorist attacks happen every day of the year. They just don't happen in places that we know. And so what happens in Paris or what happens um, closer to home in San Bernardino or something happens around us and we become really aware of what's happening, we, we suddenly get scared or fearful or wonder what, what we need to do to protect ourselves and how we need to be strong about it and what needs to happen. But religious persecution is happening all over the world every day. In fact, the worst year for persecution in the church worldwide was 2015 the second worst year in history this is in history of christian persecution worldwide was 2014 and it looks as if number one after this year will be 2016 you saw some of the statistics earlier but last year over 7,000 more than what's on the screen 7,000 christians were killed in 2015 for their faith The founder of a place called Open Doors USA, which tracks persecution in the world, says that what is happening worldwide is that it's almost like there is an ethnic cleansing. There are parts of the world where Christianity has been for since the beginning of the first century. That's trying to be wiped off the face of the earth. And I know that sometimes in America we feel pressed because of legislation that's happening, because of elections that are going on, because of things that are happening. We're worried about freedoms that we're going to lose. We're worried about the directions that the country is going to go. We're worried about things that we can and can't say in school or at work or in the culture at large. And so for us, the reason I thought about doing this series is, one, just to be aware of what's happening worldwide, but also, secondly, for us to begin to ask the question, How do we respond in a time when our faith is pressed against, when things happen that 
calls us to reevaluate. So for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about how do we respond when persecution hits. And today, I want to go all the way back to the beginning. Not the beginning of the Bible, not the beginning of time, but I want to go back to the beginning of the New Testament. To the beginning of the church. To the beginning of Christianity. I want to talk about an event that really is the catalyst for everything we know and love about the church and about Jesus. And an event that when we view it, we view it through personal redemption. We view it through the blood of Christ shed for us. But has as a part of an understanding how the persecution should be responded to in our lives. And as Americans in this blessed nation, we've never really had to figure that out. It's never been a part of our Good Friday service to talk about persecution. But it's right there in the beginning of the story. At the epicenter of the Christian faith is this understanding of persecution. I'm going to give you lots of scriptures today. I know you can't see your Bibles if you got them, all right? And so you just listen and... Um, We'll, this will be posted. We'll post it online and I'll, I'll post a link to everything we're going to talk about today. But if you go back to the beginning of our faith, the founder of our faith, the beginning point, Jesus Christ himself was a man who was betrayed by a friend, unjustly arrested, illegally tried and convicted and flogged because of what he believed. Betrayed by a friend, unjustly arrested, illegally tried and convicted and flogged. And he wasn't flogged for information. He was flogged just to please the crowd. In fact, Mark 15, 15 says, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas and then had Jesus flogged. And I know it's not near Easter and I know it's not Good Friday service, but I think it's important for us to be reminded again of what that meant, what flogging meant. And just to let you know, I understand this is going to be a heavy kind of sermon. This is not the light, normal kind of humor sometimes in the midst of it. This is heavy stuff. But I want us to deal with the heaviness of it before we talk about what does it mean for us moving forward. And when you talk about flogging in their day, they would have had professionally trained people. That would have been specifically trained in how to flog someone. It would have taken a wooden stick that would have been um, about that long. And on the end of it would have been leather straps. And inside those leather straps would have been uh, pieces of bone, pieces of rock, pieces of whatever they could find hard. And the idea was that these professionally trained men would wrap that around people's body, pull it away for the sole purpose of removing flesh with each strike. They were literally trying to peel the skin off of the back. And Jesus Christ, the one that we celebrate, the one that we, um, even as we think about Christmas, as we think about Easter, as we think about everything our lives revolve around, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, Jesus subjected himself to this flogging. And then it says, after he was flogged, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And they twisted together a crown of thorns and they pressed it into his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spit on him. And they took the staff that he was holding and they repeatedly hit him in the head with the staff. The founder of our faith was betrayed by a friend, unjustly arrested, illegally tried and convicted, flogged 
and then given the maximum sentence. Now, Romans did not, in, they did not invent crucifixion, but by all accounts, they perfected it. You see, Rome had to control a huge amount of land, and this was before they could just fly drones over there or they could have intelligence. They, they, they had to command a huge amount of land, one of the largest empires in the history of the world. And the main way they did that was through fear and intimidation. And so they had large armies in each city. But then in each city also, when someone tried to defy Roman rule, they crucified them. And they crucified them to say, this is what happens to you if you disobey. Crucifixion wasn't intended to kill anybody. It was intended to make someone suffer as long as humanly possible. So after they had been flogged, after they had been beaten, if they survived that, they would be taken to a place where they would be crucified. They would lay their hands onto a wooden crossbeam and they would nail a spike, not a little nail that you have at home to hang a picture, a spike through the wrist, crushing one of the most sensitive nerves in the entire body. Do it to both hands outstretched. They would cross their feet and they would drive a nail spike through those feet. And a lot of the pictures you see, they, you see these guys hoisted, these crucified people, Jesus or whoever else, hoisted feet into the air high above everyone. But recent scholarship and people that have studied this say that more than likely it wasn't that they were lifted five, ten feet in the air, but that they were only put about a foot above the ground. Because those that were crucifying and those that were watching wanted to have the opportunity to mock them to their face. And to see them eye to eye. And as they hung on the cross, they died, as many of you know if you've ever heard this, of suffocation, not of blood loss or trauma. As for hours upon hours upon hours, they would rise on those painful spikes to grasp some air and then fall. And eventually their bodies suffocated. Well, Jesus was on the cross, our Savior, our Lord, the one we celebrate. It says those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, come down from the cross if you truly are the Son of God. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. You say, well, what does that have to do with persecution? Well, a couple of things. First of all, first of all, Scripture tells us that Jesus didn't try to hide from the persecution that was coming. He didn't try to flee. They didn't catch him on a boat to Egypt or trying to get into a desert community where they could hide him away. He knew this was coming. He knew the cross was his end. And yet he came in to the city on a donkey down Main Street. Embracing what they were going to do to him. Our Savior walked into Jerusalem knowing this would be 
his faith. Scripture says that he set his face towards Jerusalem. There's a resoluteness about that. And here's why that's important. You see, we have this image of Jesus that I think sometimes gets really skewed. I mean, I remember growing up and the picture on the wall of Jesus in my Sunday school classroom was of Jesus holding a lamb with a staff in his hand and a halo around his head. And he looked like the nicest possible guy around, gentle, meek, and mild. Now, Jesus was nice. Jesus was loving. But if you read the scriptures, what you also get is that Jesus was tough and determined and strong and brave and fearless. You get the sense when you read the story of the crucifixion that Jesus went to the cross fearlessly. And then he says to his disciples before it happens, preparing them for that moment, and he says to you and me, follow me. Follow me. In preparing them for doing this in Luke chapter 9, he tells them, whoever wants to be my disciple, if you're here, if you're in this room and you claim to be a follower of Jesus, if you claim to be someone who's accepted the forgiveness that Jesus gives, if you're someone who has believed in Jesus Christ, whoever is you. And so he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. He says that there are times in your life, many times in your life, when there are going to be things that you want to do, agendas you want to pursue, careers you want to go after after, things that you want to take part in that are going to be contrary to the will of what Jesus wants for your life. That's going to be contrary to where Jesus wants you to go. That's going to be contrary to what Jesus wants you to do. And in those moments when your agendas clash with Jesus' agendas, you must deny yourself and follow Him. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and then take up the cross. And you have to understand, in the first century, the cross was not a piece of jewelry. My guess is there are some of you in the room today that has a cross somewhere as a piece of jewelry, or you've got it on your Bible cover, or you've got it in some way in your house as a decoration. For them, the cross was an instrument of death. It really symbolized that death was happening. It was not a symbol. It was not something you put on the top of a church. It was not something you displayed publicly for anybody. It was not something you wore around your neck or in your ears, it was something that you avoided completely. And Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and follow me. And what he means is, when it's practical and helpful and it helps you get ahead in the world, you must follow me. But when it is detrimental and not practical and not helpful, you must follow me. That when following Jesus brings benefits and productivity and wealth, you must follow him. But when it brings cost and hurt and pain and bankruptcy, you must follow him. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus tells his disciples, preparing them for a life of persecution, he says, do not, is amazing, just amazing, listen to this. Do not be afraid of those who can only kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. He says, don't be afraid of those that can only kill the body, but can't touch your soul. You see, we have this natural tendency within us to protect everything about us. 
To protect our lives, to protect our safety, to protect our security, to protect our job, to protect our reputation. And Jesus says, there may come a time in your life when there are people that are threatening to take those things away from you. But do not fear men who can only take away your body. The worst that a man can do to you is to take your life. He can't take your soul. He says, but, 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 be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body. Now the point there is there's only one who can determine the eternal destiny of your soul. Fear God, not man. One of my favorite stories in Scripture is of uh, the storm that comes up while the disciples are out on the lake. The storm comes up everywhere around them. And the whole time that the storm is raging, you remember, where's Jesus? He's asleep, right? He's in the boat asleep, and Mark tells us not only is he asleep, he's asleep on a pillow. Like he has gone full out like it is time to rest, and I am getting comfy, and this is it. Now knowing Jesus, he probably knew there was a storm coming, and he just didn't care. He's like, we'll see how those guys handle it. And they come down. You remember they come down and they're all, you know, like melodramatic. Like, what are you, Jesus, do you not even care that we're all going to die? And Jesus stands up and says, why are you afraid? What are you scared about? Yeah, things got rough for a minute. You should have trusted me. It's almost like this play's going on there where he says, listen, you love being the rock stars when we walk into town and we're healing people and everybody's getting around you going, man, you're with Jesus? That's awesome. Did he really do that? Is this really what it's about? Man, I can't believe it. He says, you love it when we're walking into places and God is doing amazing things that you see healings and people rising from the dead and crowds coming out to us wanting to adore us. You love that. But when a little storm comes up, you suddenly forget your faith in me and you get scared why are you afraid you know the story right jesus gets up and says quit it stop the waves all die and they say who is this man that even the waves obey and then there's a little phrase at the bottom of that and this is kind of interesting it's a little phrase at the bottom where the writer says and they feared a great fear In the original language, he uses the exact same word in noun and verb form. And what he's saying is the fear they had then was greater than they'd ever had. In other words, when they were scared of the storm, they were afraid. But when they saw the power of God, that's what really got them in a posture of respect. If you're going to fear anything, fear God. Here's the whole point today. This is the whole thing we're driving towards. In your life, uncertainty is unavoidable. Uncertainty is unavoidable. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. And none of us know what Tuesday's going to bring. But here's what I can tell you. Whatever you think is going to happen in life, whatever your plan is in life... I can almost guarantee that uncertainty is going to throw a wrench in your plans. Listen, I know there's an election Tuesday, and I don't, I don't have a clue what's going to happen. I can look at all the polls, and I can look at all the stuff, but I'm really not concerned as much about Tuesday as what happens after Tuesday when, when one of these two is now leading the country. What then? 
And you talk about uncertainty. There is uncertainty either way this thing goes, no matter which side of the aisle you are on. It is unavoidable. And that's on a macro level. But on the smaller level in your life, you don't know what tomorrow brings. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what diagnosis is coming. You don't know what, what differences are going to happen. You don't know what uncertainties are coming. You don't know what's going to happen financially. You don't know any of that. Uncertainty is unavoidable. But here's the point. Being afraid is optional. Uncertainty is unavoidable, but being afraid is optional. Here's how I want to end today. I want to tell you the story about three or four different people, and then I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, and then we're going to be done. Because you see what the New Testament teaches, what Jesus teaches. He goes to the cross fearlessly. We see his disciples, one after another, be killed for their faith. In fact, out of the original 12 disciples, except for Judas, who hung himself, out of those 11 that remained with Jesus, faithful until he rose again from the grave, went back to the Father, out of those, only one, only one lived a life that did not end in being killed for his faith. Peter, James, Simon, for their faith. And you think, oh, John got off. John didn't get killed for his faith. John was exiled on the island of Patmos because they dropped him in a vat of boiling oil and he did not die. Every one of them. Paul, the great builder of the church. Paul lists all the things that happened in his life. He lists all the different things, shipwrecked, out in the... It says, this is one of these things you just kind of pass over. It says he was out in the open sea for days. That's one of my greatest fears. Man, that ain't got a lot of chance of happening here in Nashville. There was a story in Paul's life when he's taken out to the edge of the city and they stone him. Now, to stone him, it means a completely different thing then than now. They take him and they throw stones on top of him, huge boulders, until they are crushed to death. It says in the scripture, these people that knew what they were doing left Paul because they thought he was dead. Paul waits for them to leave, wakes up, gets up, dusts himself off, goes back to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he says, you know what, guys, I think I'm done with this. It's too much. Is that what he says? No. He says, where can I go now? This is what God's called me to. I mean, century is littered with the testimonies of people who faced uncertainty without fear. There was a a physician that worked for the Roman government during the time when Nero and Domitian and all those people were killing Christians for their faith, putting them in the Colosseum, putting animals on them, gladiators on them. He was a physician that what he did was when they were killed or at the almost point of death, he would go examine their bodies. He would make sure everything was okay or not okay, but that they had died. His name was Claudius Gallius, and he said this about Christians. He said, fearlessness of death and the hereafter is something we witness in them every day. Perhaps my favorite story from that era is a story of a guy named Polycarp. I've told it before. Just Every time I am convicted by it. Polycarp was a guy who was given the chance. He was arrested for being a follower of Jesus. Arrested for for proselytizing. For telling people about Jesus. 
They brought him into a coliseum, into an arena. They stood him before the ruler of that day. And the ruler of that day said, you know what, Polycarp? You're an old man. I'll let you go. If you will deny Christ, I will let you go. Kind of like the girl in the video, Susan in the video, who would not get up off that mat. Isn't that an amazing story? Would not get off that mat because it would mean she had denied Christ. This guy, uh, Polycarp, is standing there. The emperor says, deny Christ, it'll be fine. This is his response. He says, 80 and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. He said, why would I blaspheme the king and savior of my soul? You threaten, I love this because it goes right back to that verse we read. You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. That obviously didn't go well with the emperor. He tied him to the stake and burned him at the stake. And as they lit the flames to kill him, Polycarp says in a loud voice for all to hear, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that for the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. If you've got a Bible here today that's in English, somewhere in your home or with you. You can think of a man named William Tyndall who thought it was his idea to translate the Hebrew and the Greek into English so that people could read the Bible. And at that time in the church, that was a very unpopular opinion and it got him arrested. It got him strangled to death and then his body burned. And while they were doing all that, he said, To the priest, to the rulers, he said, my prayer is that the boy whose hand is at the plow will know more of the Bible than you do because of what's happening here. Two years later, two years, William Tyndall's translation of the Bible became the official Bible in his country. And they based the first major translation of the Bible called the King James Version off of his testimony these are a few there are literally books filled with the stories of people who gave their lives for jesus and i want to end today these are tough questions heavy questions over the next couple of weeks we'll we'll talk about some implications of this it'll get a little lighter over the next couple of weeks um but here are the questions that i really want you to think about okay first of all Is your version of Christianity worth all that? Your, I take Sundays and I come to church and I I open my Bible when the preacher talks. I take a couple of notes. I sing some songs every now and then. And then it's not really a big deal to me the rest of the week. Or I come on Sundays and Wednesdays, but it still doesn't impact how I live. Is your version of Christianity really worth all of that? Ask in a different way. Is your version of Christianity worth dying for? Is it worth your life? third question is your version of christianity worth the price that's been paid by the founder of our faith who gave his life for us as a ransom for our sins to the lives of hundreds and thousands in the centuries that have gone before for the seven thousand people that gave their life last year for christianity For the people that are right now in Syria and Iraq and Pakistan and Kenya and Ethiopia and Uganda. 
whose lives are at stake because of their faith. You know, sometimes I do think that if they found out what we worried about, what we were concerned about when it came to our faith, even legislation that's happening, I think they would go, you're afraid of what? I mean, you're, you're worried about who? When they meet on a Sunday by candlelight with the threat that that door is going to break down and someone's going to take their life. It's better to ask sooner or later whether your faith is worth that, whether your life is worth that. And it's better to make that decision now before it comes to that moment. Is your faith worth dying for? Uncertainty is unavoidable, but being afraid is optional. Let's pray together.